two, check one, two. There we go. <laughs> All right, let's read James chapter one. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is, a, he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word, for the power it has in our lives and in the world around us. And we pray right now that our hearts would be open to what you want to teach us today. Spirit, we ask that you would move and work and touch hearts and change lives the way that only you can do. Father, we thank you for this gathering of people with all of our stories and messes and fears and celebrations and all of it mixed up together. Lord, we thank you for all of it. 
and for bringing us to this place this morning as a community, as a church body, who are eager to hear what you want us to hear. So be with us now. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, dear. If you didn't know, that's my wife. That's The pastor calls ladies dear, but he's not old, like, can get away with that? Yeah. Just my wife. Zeal, zest, and zingers. So uh, my wife, Karen, wherever she went, where did she go? Oh, hey, sitting with your parents now. Uh, she came home last week after bowling with the youth and basically gave me the theme for this sermon. And it is this, uh, where you stay is how you smell. Where you stay is how you smell. She came home after being at the bowling alley for about two hours and smelt like that bowling alley grease and fryer, overburned fryer, you know, stuff and regret. <laughs> and it was just saturated within her. And, and, you know, we're going to bed and I'm holding her and her hair's right in my face. I'm like, I, I just can't do this. This is giving me mild PTSD from junior high and all of that. But you know that that's the case. I, I mean, maybe you went home or smelled yourself or your laundry on Friday after Thursday. What would you smell like? Turkey, onions, all that, because where you stay is how you smell. And that's the case with this season we find ourselves in today of Advent. That's the case with the book of James and uh, our lives as a whole. We'll give a brief introduction to Advent, and then we'll get into the book. So Advent is this season. It is the four Sundays before Christmas on the church calendar. In at least my last 11-plus years of pastoring a church, there seems to be at least an increase in popularity in that time. And part of that is, is good. Part of that is sad. Uh, it's a season that has been observed for centuries within the church, but in the last, again, at least as I've noticed in the last decade, it's been popularized, commercialized, and commodified, which is, again, good in that there's a little bit more awareness, and then it's going, I don't know if Advent is simply about having a particular new beer every single day for the 24 days leading up to Christmas, or a Lego, or a makeup, or whatever the, the thing is. It's like, man, we really know how to, how to sell things in this country. Oh, that's a holiday. Let's sell stuff. So the, the place it comes from, if you didn't know, early church, uh, much of it was in Latin, and the word in Latin is adventus, where we get advent. It means arrival or a coming. And again, it's the four Sundays, not the 24 days before Christmas, but the four Sundays before Christmas. And it's meant to help God's people to orient ourselves around the themes of joy, of peace, of love, and of hope in the tension of Jesus' first arrival, which we celebrate, but it's also this deep longing and expectation for his second coming and second arrival. And this season is meant to give us space to feel it all. And I recognize for some of you, you're little Christmas elves, and you couldn't wait until Friday, where you would no longer be judged, because it's after Thanksgiving. I mean, your stuff was up maybe early November, and the carols were playing, even though biblically that's wrong. 
not really, I'm just saying. I think Jesus is on my side with that one. Uh, it's like Friday after Thanksgiving, let it roll. Um, where others of you, you're like, I just can't wait till January 1st. Please, 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 for whatever reason. This season is meant, again, to look back at the Jesus who came and took on flesh and to look forward in anticipation and hope and longing for his return. We're to be in the tension of those two arrivals and feel the tension of both. We're to practice proximity, pay attention to our lives, and lean into the alternatives that are offered in following Jesus today. That Jesus invites us to move from stress to slowing. He invites us out of anxiety into anticipation. He invites us to go from being on the surface to depth. And he gives us not only a place, but himself to put our griefs and sorrows that many of us feel. We'll sing a song later. It's one of my favorites for the season. Come thou long expected Jesus. That song, more than most, encapsulates the, the joy of Jesus' first coming and the longing for his second. In these four weeks, we are going to be uh, continuing through our series. We'll look at James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, uh, the Johns, and Jude on Christmas Eve. And what James does, if you didn't notice already from the reading, James helps wake us up and shake us up on this first Sunday of Advent. James is somewhat of a splash of cold water on our face with, I imagine, a bit of a slap too. How many of you, and I'm just curious, we can be honest here, I want to know who likes James, who struggles with James, who enjoys the book of James. Larry, why do you like James? Because he really gives really practical information in chapter 4, verse 14, to the elect, but a vapor appears for a little yeah. way, so it's bringing context to my life. Yeah, so James is practical to the point. How many of you don't love, and this is okay, because I'm one of them. I know it says more about me than the book itself, but how many of you struggle with the book of James? Anybody? Why? Jake? It's stressful. I, there's an honest man. I love it. Yeah. I read James and, and I sweat. I mean, I sweat anyways. You guys all know that. My son was lighting me up. He's all, you're, you pits sweat when you teach, Dad. I know, kid. You're not helping me by bringing that out. James is stressful. Why, why do you say it's stressful? Convicting. Convicting. What else? Anybody else doesn't like it and wants to, wants to say why? That's it? I mean, I agree with the stressful part, but it's the truth. Yeah. And, and what do they say about the truth? The truth hurts, right? The truth hurts. I, I have a, a mixed relationship with the book. Again, I love it for its practicalities. It's right to the point. He doesn't, um, you aren't wondering how James feels or what he thinks in this book. But that's also the problem is he puts it all out there, and it's somewhat of an encapsulation of Hebrews 4, that the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. You can't even get through the first few verses without kind of going, ouch, 
a little bit. Famously, Martin Luther did not like the book of James. He called it the epistle of straw. Here's his quote. He says, in a word, St. John's gospel and his first epistle, St. Paul's epistles, especially Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, and St. Peter, St. Peter's first epistle are the books that show you Christ and teach you all that is necessary and salvatory for you to know, even if you were never to see or hear any other book or doctrine. Therefore, St. James's epistle is really an epistle of straw compared to these others, for it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. And I'm going to go out on a limb and disagree with the reformer. Because when we understand the audience and the application of Christian wisdom, we see that the gospel really undergirds the whole thing. How? Well, it starts in verse 1 with the zeal of the author that is meant to root the readers, where it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So the first question to ask is, who is this James? And church history tells us that this is none other than the half-brother of Jesus. And the gift that scripture gives us is that we get honest glimpses into not only who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished, but we get an honest glimpse into Jesus' own family's journey. And it starts with some doubt. Mark chapter 3, verse number 20 says this, And then he went home. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his, this is Jesus' family, heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. This is Jesus' own family. The angel appeared to Mary and Joseph, and they're going, hmm, a little crazy, little nuts. Let, let's, let's get him back home. The Bible's honest. Jesus' own family had their doubts about him. Not only did they doubt, they, they had some distance from him. John chapter 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. So, what I appreciate here is Scripture's honesty about Jesus' family and their own journey. How many of you have a brother? How many of you worship that brother? Again, Jake, Jack, both brothers here, nah, it's not happening. And, and now maybe as time goes on, you, you grow in a little bit of admiration and respect. You all heard my brother's story when we went through the book of Ezekiel. Like, I have a growing admiration and appreciation for my brother. I am worshiping the guy ever, ever. Like, it's even hard for me to give him a compliment. And so we get that honesty with Jesus' own family. But then what happens? Acts chapter 1, verse 14, tells us this. All these, the disciples, there's a whole list of them, with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. 
something changed. And that is the cross and resurrection reshaped everything, not only for the entire world, but this family in particular. 1 Corinthians 15 gives us a glimpse of all of the witnesses that saw and, and witnessed the resurrection and how that shaped this first century community of followers. And apparently, the cross and resurrection were enough for the family to become full-fledged disciples and followers of this Jesus. James, in saying in this first verse that he is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, shows us the process of going from doubt and distance to disciple. A few decades later, he is one of the very first leaders in the early church. You can see the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, that he's right there leading the church through crisis and growth and difficulty. He's right at the front of it all. He moves from doubt to disciple. And pens one of these earliest letters that we have, that he is not only a brother, but he's a servant of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And from this lordship, life flows. And he's writing here to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Again, these are first century followers with a Jewish background who are looking to uh, commit themselves to Jesus in all things. And that includes persecution and difficulty. And if you want to see the artistry of this letter, really watch the Bible Project video that, that encapsulates it. James gives 12 teachings to these 12 tribes, and he's looking to apply wisdom in their lives, into their challenges, and into their struggles. He's employing wisdom in metaphors and practicalities in an effort to press them towards the word is perfection. Again, not only does he give 12 teachings to these 12 tribes, that numbers all throughout scripture, but the word perfection or perfect appears seven times, which again is intentional in it all. Now, English translations aren't so great, and it's no fault of the translators, it's really the, uh, the language that we have. Because the word perfection in our understanding is like completely, totally pure. Where... In scripture, it's meant more to be whole or mature. Where Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He, he's painting a bigger picture than what our minds often go to. Jonathan Pennington, he has a commentary, uh, the Sermon on the Mount in Human Flourishing. He says in English, perfect means without blemish. What this word perfect means is whole to be complete and consistent, like an integer, which is related to integrity. It speaks of maturity. All of the ethics of the Bible are imitative because this is what God is like. And so the call to perfection is really a call to wholeness. And it's one of the themes of the Christian life, that not only does the gospel bring us from death to life, but the gospel brings us from fragmentation, and, and that is inconsistency, to wholeness. 
And in doing that, James employs plenty of zingers, there's your second Z, to show how the gospel impacts various aspects of our human existence. And there's really an artistry to how he goes about that. Douglas Moo, and yes, his last name is Moo, um, and you can write him all of your jokes that I'm probably thinking of. Uh, He says it well. He says, in rapid-fire sequence, James does this in the first chapter, encourages his readers to respond positively to their trials. He exhorts them to ask in faith for wisdom. He comforts the poor and warns the rich. He pronounces a blessing on Christians who endure trials. He warns believers not to blame God for their temptations. He reminds his readers that all good gifts, including the new birth, come from God. He warns his readers about sins of speech. He exhorts believers to be obedient to the word they have received and reminds them of the essence of true religion. Wordplay is evident in the Greek text, but usually not in the English, forge literary links between many of these sections. And I'll save myself the embarrassment and just give you the English. Greetings in verse 4 is picked up by joy in verse 2. Lacking in verse 4 is picked up by lax in verse 5. Trial in verse 12 is picked up by when tempted in verse 13. Notice also that teleos, perfect, complete, occurs in 4, 17, and 25. So, Again, when we're often reading in the English, uh, we can lack the insight and artistry and beauty of these books. And again, this is why we're sending out the Bible Project videos every single week, because they help capture a lot of that. The words that James bring are comforting and they are cutting. They are helpful, but they are hard to hear. For instance, verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you, and how would you fill in that blank? Get everything you ever wanted on Christmas. Joy. No, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? Because he says God is at work in that. God is doing something in that. The testing of our faith produces steadfastness. But let it have its full effect, its perfect work. I believe that uh, New King James says that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. How many of us want to hear that today? Hey, there's something that can be grown in you. There's something that's missing in you. And and the way in which you will get to that point of growth is through difficulty, through trial, through hardship, through suffering. No thanks. (laughs) Can I just buy it? Can I, is there a hack to, to kind of fast track this? And we all know from human experience, the answer is no. Growth comes through difficulty and time and reflection and grace working in and through that. James shows us how faith without works isn't just not cool or stale, it's dead. The following Jesus isn't simply ascribing to mental or moral things, but it is doing the word. It is living it out in the trenches of daily life. The partiality with people doesn't belong in the kingdom of God. I'm not a huge fan of all of his warnings against how we use our words. And if you know me, you know why. (laughs) This sucker gets me because it's connected to this sucker and a lot of trouble. Like this, I, and I'm not going to 
spend any amount of time, but not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. Cool. Hmm. <laughs> What's that old worship song? I'll let my words be few. <laughs> I have a hard time applying that. But what is this all meant to do? And this is I was thinking through this week. Well, as you read through James, what is it meant to do? And, and because I'm sticking with disease, I think it's meant to bring about a zest in life. It's meant to bring a certain kind of aroma and flavor and distinction to life. I mean, we just celebrated this holiday that is meant to have a zest of flavors. And I'm not going to go for a show of hands of, you know, how that went for you guys, but some of you have probably experienced a, a Thanksgiving dinner that lacked flavor. The turkey didn't turn out quite right. It's just dry, sticks to your mouth, and you're like, why do we do this? We should be like Anthony and cook steaks instead. <laughs> but the Christian life is supposed to bring a certain kind of zest and aroma and flavor into this world. And when you read the letter, I, I would encourage you not to, to read through James as a whole. It's only five chapters. To read it as a whole in one sitting with the lens of wisdom at work, bringing about a kind of life. What you smell in this letter is the Savior. When you read through this book, you smell Jesus throughout it. As, as James warns the rich, it, it reminds us of something someone said about camels going through the eyes of a needle. If you read the Gospels, what do you see Jesus again and again and again talking about money and warning about our hearts being too tightly attached to stuff, to possessions, to wealth? When James warns us about Loving our neighbors in hypocrisy if we ignore the poor. Does that, not like, does that not sound like someone who had been at the foots of someone else, feet, the foots, the feet of someone else who heard and implemented the parable of the Good Samaritan? When he gives teachings on the tongue, does it not sound like somebody who chewed a lot on, on the phrase, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks? The letter, the letter reads like someone who is looking to apply the teaching and wisdom of Jesus into the nooks and crannies of real life. And I think often that strikes us as convicting because we can detach life with Jesus and our faith from who and where we really are. It's the cliche that we use Christianity as somewhat of, a, of an insurance, a fire insurance policy. I'll hold on to this because this will help me when I die. You know, there's like these two roads in two places and one's hot and forever and sounds unpleasant and one's like a nice uh, kind of white picket fence American dream in the sky. I'll pick that one and kind of try to be a good person or at least better than, you know, all these others. And James is saying no the truth of Jesus and the grace of Jesus and the words of Jesus are to impact every single aspect and area of our hearts and therefore our lives. Where you stay 
is how you'll smell. Where you are is going to affect what you absorb. Which then, especially on a Sunday like today, as we go warp speed into this holiday season, this Advent season, begs the question, what is going to be the habitat of our hearts? Where are we going to rest? Where are we going to call home? What are we going to look to? Who are we going to depend on? What pace are we going to run in this season? Where are we going to stay? The life promoted in this letter is not a rigid moralistic framework. But again, like I mentioned earlier, Hebrews chapter 4 is in action, revealing areas of our hearts that are out of alignment with the kingdom of God. And it invites us into a life under a better lordship all while understanding the human condition and the hurdles that we face then and now. It gives us a right kind of prodding towards holiness, towards hope, and wholeheartedly following Jesus. And so, as you enter into continuing this Advent season, where's your heart? What is going to give it rest, hope? holiness in it all? What is the habitat of your heart? And will you allow God's grace and Holy Spirit to smooth off, convict, uh, challenge you with areas that aren't consistent with the kingdom of God? And one more from Douglas Moo. He says, I am more impressed by ever more impressed than ever by James's creative use of the Hellenistic Jewish traditions in his exposition of practical Christianity. And I remain convinced that the heart of the letter is a call to wholehearted commitment to Christ. James's call for consistent and uncompromising Christian living is much needed. Our churches are filled with believers who are only half-hearted in their faith, and as a result, leave large areas of their lives virtually untouched by genuine Christian values. Nor am I immune to such problems. As I quite unexpectedly find myself in my middle-aged years, <coughs> Anthony, I have discovered a tendency to back off in my fervor for the Lord and his work. My re-immersion in James has challenged me sharply at just this point. And so is there good news beyond the challenges? Well, yes, because there's promises given in those tough places of James. One of my favorite lines in all of scriptures comes in chapter 4, verse 6. It's not going to be on the screen. In chapter 4, James is warning against worldliness. And, and I'll, just, I'll just read the, the whole thing uh, if you want to turn to chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? <laughs> He did it, that's what. It's always the other person. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Maybe. <laughs> you desire, and you do not have, so you murder. You covet, and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have, because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. 
Like, it, that is such good and helpful uh, exposition of Jesus' teaching on asking, seeking, and knocking, right? And some prosperity teachers will take the ask, seek, knock, and the, if you have faith, then it's going to be given to you, and you're like, and they preach that, and there's a hotline, and you can call and give a lot of, num- you know, give a lot of money, and that's going to be seed, and all this stuff, and you're like, wait, it's not working. And then you turn to James, and you're like, oh, that's why. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you not suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Than this. Because at this point, like, I'm, I'm bleeding, I'm hurting, the word has cut me up. I'm like, ow, help, and this. But he gives more grace. And, and like that, it's refreshing. And like that, there's hope. Like that, there's help. Because when we look in the mirror, individually and as a whole, we go, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's desires that need to be straightened out by King Jesus. There's things that aren't healthy within us. Yeah, I, my desires are not always and aren't often aligned with his heart, his kingdom, his will, his way. Good news. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. And then he goes back on one. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. But he gives more grace. That phrase is enough to lift a life and sustain a soul. To press that promise into every place of life. Anybody have a hard time controlling their tongue? But he gives more grace. Anybody have problems with desires? But he gives more grace. Our natural tendency is to give preference to the rich and be partial against the poor, but he gives more grace. Anybody have a hard time putting faith into action and can feel at times like, well, my faith is without works and kind of feels sort of dead. But he gives more grace. The truth of Jesus has the power to change the heart and gift us new desires and drive behavior in life. And we cannot get that backwards. That our identity in Christ will then drive and shape all of our activity in life. And many of us get that backwards and it feels like a hamster wheel of earning and performance when that's not the call of Jesus. The call of Jesus is that he gives us with a new life. He gives us with a new heart. And from that place, then we go about living with his help that is available. If you need wisdom, yeah, (laughs) then ask and see that wisdom at work. 
And not only see that wisdom at work, but see that that wisdom took on flesh and leads the way. Look to Jesus, who calls his followers friends, who is with us, who is for us, who has promised to return. You see, we can enter Advent with the right kind of zeal. The right kind of zeal is one that lives under the lordship of Jesus, that looks to make Jesus known, Jesus famous, that, that lets our own desires die for the sake of exalting the true and risen king, the king who calls us friends. We can allow these zingers to challenge us, to shape us, to develop us where we need it, and let the fragrance and zest of our lives be Christ as he gives us the grace we need in those places. Let's pray. And so, Father, we thank you for the truth of the gospel, of how you have changed the world and are changing our lives. We thank you that you don't simply deliver platitudes in pithy statements, but you give us a power to change. A power that is different, a power that is real and tangible, a power that has changed our lives, that has transformed us from being dead to alive, from enemies to friends, from fragmented to whole. And we confess today, and as we look at this upcoming month, we need your help to slow down, to remember you, and allow your truth and your teachings to really impact our words, our ways, and how we interact with your world. And so even as we gather today in these next few Sundays, would you slow us down enough to to savor the truth and the promise that you give more grace. We confess we need it, and we thank you that it's available. In Christ's name we pray, amen.